I invite you to turn to your in your copy of the scriptures to James chapter two. Again, our text today is verses fourteen through twenty-six. However, will primarily be in verses eighteen through twenty-six. This will be our last sermon in this portion of James' epistle, the second chapter. Here once again, the very Word of God, James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well, even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, as we look into the doctrine of justification this morning, we pray that we would rightly divide the word of truth that you would give us wisdom, both from James' epistle as well as many other places in Scripture that speak of this same notion, the justification of man. Father, help us to be faithful to your word in this. Help us to be faithful to act out your word, even as, as James has admonished us that faith without works is dead. We submit to it, Lord. Help us to have glad hearts as we submit. Help us to do so in a spirit of humility, but also a spirit that wants and desires to see the kingdom of your Son advanced. And we ask this in His name and for that end. Amen. Well, brother, today we shall dwell into the concept of justification. And this particular doctrine of the Scriptures receives a great deal of attention by the Reformed community for many reasons, not the least of which is that Martin, Martin Luther believed that Christianity rose or, or falls on this very doctrine, the doctrine of justification. This doctrine is very important to our understanding of salvation. The words justified or justification appear 39 times in the Scriptures, and of those appearances, 20 appear in the writings of Paul, and another three right here in James chapter 2. So why is this doctrine so very important to our Christianity? The answer is, that is found in the very meaning of the word. The word justify means to be rendered innocent 
to be rendered innocent. The natural question to follow is to be rendered innocent of what? What are we to be rendered innocent of? And the Bible answers that question very clearly to be rendered innocent of the consequences of your own sin. But we shall come back to that concept in a few minutes. But I first want us to consider the importance of verse 22 in our text. Verse 22. Brethren, I contend that this entire passage cannot be understood apart from the proper emphasis on this verse. Verse 22. And that verse reads, Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. This verse, verse is speaking of Abram's faith in taking Isaac to the mountain with the intention of sacrificing him by the command of God. This verse also stresses the inseparable nature of true saving faith and corresponding works. The inseparable nature between true saving faith and corresponding works. Now, in the last couple of weeks, I've encouraged us to think when we hear the word works in James's epistle, to think of the word that Paul uses in his epistle, which is fruit. The fruit of your faith are the works of your faith. The things that you work out in faith. This verse also stresses the inseparable nature of true faith and corresponding works. And what I want us to take careful note of is the last phrase of this verse. And by works, faith was made perfect. And by works, faith was made perfect. In the original Greek, the phrase reads like this. And out of toil, the belief was matured. Out of toil, the belief was matured. This is a difficult phrase for us to fully embrace. It would appear at first glance that merit, that is spiritual credit held to be earned by performance of righteous acts to ensure a future benefit was what was in mind by James. But I would suggest that we look at this from a very different perspective. I would suggest in considering either the New King James translation or my own, both in both places, faith or belief is the antecedent to works or to toil. In other words, faith or belief is a preceding event. It's a preceding condition or cause. That's what antecedent means. To the works or toil that perfect or mature the very faith that one has. Faith does not live in a vacuum, according to James. To James, it is inconceivable to claim to have saving faith and not have the evidence of that faith, namely, good works. They go hand in glove. They cannot be separated in the mind of James. And this perspective on justification necessarily places faith ahead of the works that are evidence of faith or belief. Thus we can rightly conclude that saving faith can only mature or grow when it is followed by righteous toil or works. Fortunately for us, James gives us two illustrations of saving faith that has corresponding righteous acts or works. 
The first is Abraham's command from God to sacrifice his son. As we see from our text, James writes, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? What was, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with, work, with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Well, in verse 23, James quotes from the passage where God has promised Abraham he will be the father of many nations. Long before the birth of Isaac, maybe as many as 20 years, God gives him this promise. It is at that time, the time of the promise, before Isaac's birth, that Abraham believed God and the scriptures teach us from Genesis 15, that it was accounted to him for righteousness. Some 20 years probably before Isaac's birth. Clearly, when James poses the question, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar, that he was speaking of the point in time Abraham was declared justified or rendered innocent of the consequences of his sin. That had occurred, or had been fulfilled, many years before, as described in Genesis 15 and affirmed by James in this very passage. It was accounted to Abraham as righteousness that he believed God in Genesis 15. But it wasn't until Genesis 22 that we see this account of Abraham offering up Isaac his son. Abraham was declared justified or rendered innocent of the consequences of sin in Genesis 15. And that had been fulfilled many years before Isaac's birth. The offering of Isaac, however, was an act of faith. And was the evidence that the faith Abraham had in Genesis 15 was still at work in his life in Genesis 22. Now the second example of faith that James gives us is that of Rahab the harlot. And if we read the account of Rahab the harlot in the book of James alone, it would appear that Rahab only exercised faith when she sent the soldiers out the other way. This is an interesting circumstance, and no doubt some of you will have questions about the ethics of telling a lie, which has happened here. When the king's men and the king came to Rahab asking about the whereabouts of the spies, she says, oh, they've left. They've gone through the gate, when in fact they were on the roof of the house. And you can find that in Joshua chapter 2. We have to keep in mind that this is a time of warfare, a time of war. And Rahab is siding with the people of Israel in time of war. She is exercising faith. But if we only looked at James's account of this circumstance, we would be woefully ignorant of the faith that she had, which was exercised prior to her sending the king's men the wrong way. 
If you would turn with me to Joshua chapter 2, I want to read a portion of the account of this circumstance. And this is where she is giving an account of her own faith prior to doing this, this deed. Beginning in verse 8. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted, neither did there remain any more courage in any one because of you. For the, Now listen to these words. This is Rahab saying this to the spies. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. And spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. Rahab acknowledges that the God of Israel is the God of both heaven and earth. And she is bowing before him when she pleads that these spies would intercede with their God on the behalf of her family. That they would show kindness to her father's house, to give a true token and spare her father, her mother, her brothers, her sisters, and all that they have and deliver them from death. Rahab has faith prior to the act of sending the king's men away. And that is an act expressing the faith that she already had. From, the, from this passage, it is clear that Rahab had come to believe that the God of the Hebrews, who had destroyed all the enemies of Israel, including Sihon and Og, and children, if you don't know who those two men are, ask mom and dad. They're important people in the Bible. They are giants who God slew at the hand of His people. Two great giant kings, they were slain. And this was by the true and living God. The inhabitants of Jericho knew they were in the path of the Israelites, and unless they surrendered, they would fall next. Their city would fall next. In verse 11 of Joshua 2, Rahab states, For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven and on earth. Yes, this is a statement of true faith. Not only is Yahweh God in heaven, but on earth as well. Rahab knows she has an obligation to submit to Yahweh, and does so by her actions. It is wartime, and she is under no obligation to submit to a tyrant king who wages war against Yahweh. She shelters and hides the servants of God at her own peril. And this is a corresponding act of righteousness based upon the faith she expresses in verse 11. Though James does not mention this next example, for us to be honest with the Scripture as it describes justification with faith and then corresponding works, 
It, would, it is important for us to consider the thief on the cross who hung next, next to Jesus. Here is an example where faith, works, and justification are evidenced simultaneously. It's the only place in Scripture that I can think that this happens. I could be wrong about that. But in the previous examples of James, faith preceded the works that they showed. Here it appears that faith, works, and justification happen simultaneously. Consider the account in Luke's Gospel. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals, who were hanged, blasphemed him, saying, If you are, are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering the first robber, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Consider the confession of this robber. He acknowledges that he deserves punishment for his sins. And he turns to Christ and says, Lord, acknowledging Christ's ability to pronounce just this man from his sins. He said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, verily, that word assuredly means, may it come to pass. I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. When Jesus is reviled here by the soldiers, one of the two robbers joins his voice with the soldiers in reviling Jesus. The other robber comes to the defense of Jesus, to the defense of his innocence, and then asks for salvation. In an act of mercy and grace, Jesus justifies the robber and promises his participation in paradise. And remember the definition of justification. To be rendered innocent. To be rendered innocent of one's own sins. Though it may appear that the robber merited his justification here, only the one who rendered innocent the robber's sin actually did anything. That was Jesus. He acted. The robber could not act on his own behalf, though he had done a good deed. I submit to you that the deed was done because he was exercising faith. When he said, Lord, he acknowledged the one who could render innocent a man of his own sin. At no time is Jesus obligated to act in mercy and grace toward the robber. Nothing obligates God to do that. His sins were known. 
and he admitted them freely. Under what law, then, was Jesus compelled to show mercy? The answer is none. It was by grace, unmerited favor, that Jesus acted in rendering innocent the robber. It was not out of obligation. This is love at its highest expression. Jesus acts on our behalf when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, the Scriptures teach us. He is under no obligation to act on our behalf. Yet He acts with the greatest provision known to man, a pronouncement of innocence. You are just in the eyes of God because God acts with grace and mercy. Where does this power to render one just in the eyes of God come from? Paul answers that question in Romans chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. And I'll read those for you. For if by one man's offense death reigns through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life, the pronouncement of innocence. This righteous act of Jesus was dying on the cross. That brought about justification for those who believe in Him. And for those who believe unto saving, the saving faith of their souls, they will bear the fruit of righteous acts until the day of their glorification. Jesus, the righteous one, has made a way unto God. And Jesus said these words, and it was recorded in John 10.9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved or justified and will go in and out and find pasture. I make this call again. Many of you have responded to this call already. But there may be those here today who have never responded to the call. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the door of your salvation. Enter through Him. And you will find rest for your soul. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures that teach us that those who put their faith and trust in Christ will see paradise as the thief on the cross. Those who act out their faith to the end of, of their lives, till they are glorified, we'll see paradise as well, as we have examples in the lives of Abraham and Rahab. Father, we ask that you, your Spirit would work a work in our hearts, that we would be faithful to the end. That great doctrine, the perseverance of the saints, is something we strive to emulate, Lord. Help us to be like Abraham, who some 20 years before, when you made a promise to him that he would be the father of many nations, he still believed that promise when you asked him to sacrifice his own son 
and then provided a scapegoat. Father, we pray that we would have that kind of faith. We pray that we would have the kind of faith that Rahab had. When in the midst of warfare, her faith was tested and she provided for the needs of God's people. Help us not to bow the knee to the tyrannical governments that would suppress our faith, but rather bow our knee to the King of kings and Lord of lords, who tells those who govern men to kiss the Son lest he be angry, and they perish in their way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Father, help us to have faith in that King. And Father, we pray when we are weighed down by our own sins, as the thief on the cross was, that we would look to you to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to lift us up, to lift us up on that last day when we pass from this life to the next. Help us to have the faith that pronounces you King and Lord even at our time of death. Father, we pray for our ministry here in Ludlow and ask that you would open the doors of our church to others who need to hear the gospel and will respond to it by faith. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be faithful in the ordinary means of grace. And we thank you, Lord, for providing those means of grace for your people. Strengthen us to do your work and to be faithful day in and day out. And help us to seek opportunities to show our faith by our works. Father, we do pray for the church around the world. Many of your people are being persecuted. Many of them are having to stand and act by faith in the midst of those who threaten their lives. We pray that you would strengthen them, that indeed that their faith would be shown by their works in their willingness to bow their knee only to you. Father, we pray for the families of those who are threatened. We ask that you would protect them, that you would, your kingdom would advance in the midst of these persecutions, that you would also provide safety. Father, we thank you for the work that you've given our hands to do here. I pray for the men of our church and their vocations, that you would bless them and the women as well as they endeavor to do the work of the kingdom each and every day. And we pray for our children, Lord, that you would raise them up to be faithful believers, that they too would advance your kingdom. Father, in all this we are grateful. We ask now that you would bless the remainder of our service. Help us to honor you at your table. And now let us join our voices together in the prayer that Jesus prayed with his disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.